0: it's tracy i am back with super producer alex how are you
1: super producer alex is here i'm doing well thanks for having me yeah
0: well uh what's been going on
1: what has been going on you know i've got a couple things here that i want to get your read on the first is and you and i haven't talked about this gabby petito
0: oh gabby petito yeah um have you been
1: following that story
0: yeah she's dead Mm -hmm.
1: yeah and then brian laundry is the person of interest associated with this. Yeah. Uh, do you have a read on that yet?
0: Uh, yeah, I watched the uh, body cam and from from their stop in Moab there at Arches Park. Right. And uh, so so with that, what we got was a baseline of how he deals with cops, which is super agreeable and pleasant. And because, um, you know, they're in, in that domestic situation. And anyway, so he wants to do anything for the cops that he can. And then all of a sudden she turns up dead and he will not talk to the cops at all, which is a huge switch in baseline. And uh, so so that's what we have. Really what I would like to see is an interview with him or his parents. And uh, the other thing that I noticed is that he has a tattoo on his right, uh, one of the fingers on his right hand. And I have never met anyone with tattoos on their fingers that didn't have a really severe anger issue. So, um,
1: wait a minute, stop mm -hmm. right there. Can Mm -hmm. you unpack that one for me?
0: Well, it's very unscientific. Hey, all I do is profile people for a living. So Uh it seems to be something that I've noticed. And if you look in that body cam video, uh, there he is big, uh, big tattoo on his right. I think it's his middle finger. And uh, I was like, uh, wow, that that guy has a lot of anger, I bet. So and they're already fighting anyway. And his his account of what happened was different than what the witness. Uh, I guess there was a witness in the parking lot somewhere. So sure. Yeah. Uh, a lot to um, a lot to be seen. There awaits to be seen.
1: So I'm still a little fascinated with the finger tattoo and that that's going to be indicative of of anger. And it's very interesting to me that that tattoo is on his middle finger. That's his bird finger, right?
0: I, I'm pretty sure it's his middle finger. Um, and, you know, you, we can go back and look. But, Alex, have you ever met anyone with tattoos on their hands that is completely sane?
1: You know, I, I don't know that I've ever met anybody with just or if I did see tattoos no, you on haven't. fingers, the I no. didn't the, really notice it. But, yeah,
0: yeah the, no, the answer is no. No one okay, has I'll go because with they're no. not out there.
1: Okay. I had never heard that about the tattoo or that that could be indicative. Are there other places that you could have tattoos that would indicate something significant other than your face? Of
0: course. Oh, yeah. Your neck. Those people are all nuts.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Can we can we drill that diagnosis down just a little sharper than just, oh, yeah, they're nuts?
0: Uh, No, we can't. That's that's as far as I've gone.
1: (laughs) Okay. So project for next time, I guess. But uh, how are you for a Florida woman's story today.
0: Oh, yes. Need it. Now, now do I get to to pick if it's true or false?
1: Well, I'll just go ahead and tell you that it's true, but you can we can play (laughs) true or false later if you like.
0: Well, I think I already know the answer.
1: (laughs) 28 year old Jessica Smith from Boston. So seemingly sane, but she gets to Florida and everything goes out the window, of
0: course, as as one would expect.
1: So there's a standoff between Florida police and an armed suspect, not jessica smith okay uh and uh, so apparently uh let me see if i can get you the whole story so uh pinellas county sheriff now that is once again florida that's the saint petersburg tampa area mm. uh at three of its offers uh, officers out there at about eight o'clock in the evening uh they approached one particular guy who was acting suspiciously they claim the guy flees starts firing his gun at nearby citizens so that ends with a standoff with the guy you know Squared off in, in a corner somewhere, and the cops keeping him pinned down there. Meanwhile, in comes Jessica, twenty eight year old Jessica Smith from Boston, allegedly drives onto the crime scene in a golf cart while being completely naked.
0: Did I see this on the news?
1: <laughs> you may <laughs> I have. Did. <laughs> and apparently, she had quote a distinct odor of alcoholic beverage coming from her person.
0: Imagine and that. she was
1: completely nude. Yeah,
0: oh. is that what <laughs> they do? They do nude golf. Cart driving in Florida? I,
1: I don't know the answer to that question, but you know it does sometimes get so hot down there that it would make sense.
0: I I think so. You know, I'm going to Florida in a couple of weeks to speak.
1: Maybe, are you bringing clothes?
0: Uh no, I'm no. not.
1: Not at all. <laughs> I think that's a grand plan.
0: Hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's going to be good. It's going to be really good.
1: <laughs> well, who are we talking about today? I know you've got an interview scheduled later today. Who are you uh, Who are you meeting with?
0: Oh, I'm talking to. Um, Fitz, Jim Fitzgerald, retired FBI.
1: Got it. This is and the guy who was in, involved with the Unabomber, right?
0: He's the one who used forensic linguistics to catch the Unabomber. If it wow. wasn't for him, if it wasn't for him, the Unabomber would not have been. He'd still be sending these packages around blowing people up.
1: And how long was the Unabomber doing this?
0: 17 years.
1: No kidding. 17
0: years. Okay. And you remember, he he was living in, the, they found him in that uh, shack in Montana.
1: I know. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. And yeah. that was what? That was the early 90s? Mid 90s? Mid
0: 90s. Yeah. It was okay. like 96. So I was still in college. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, he, so, so there was this manifesto and he uh, figured out the writings and how it matched some other writings. And uh, his, they published it and his brother, his brother's wife said, that, I know who, who did this because his brother, um, the Unabomber's brother and his sister-in-law, they, they didn't all get along.
1: Unabomber's brother, sister-in-law. Okay. So the brother and the sister-in-law were the ones that recognized the writing.
0: Yeah. The sister-in-law. Yeah.
1: Got it. Okay. And then they turned him in. Is mm-hmm. that right? Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's thousands and thousands of pages of writings that he that he compared and and that he had some unique tells and unique things that he did when he was writing. So in in ways he was trying to throw the cops off and uh, Mm -hmm. it's fascinating. And so uh, Jim, he's going to tell us all about it. And he, he had a limited series on discovery, manhunt Unabomber fascinating. Uh I binged it on a plane. So
1: cool. (laughs) I'm wondering about the, uh, the brother and the sister-in-law and the reason that she uh, was the one that, that, Ultimately, turn this whole thing over. Uh, I'm wondering if she was just if she was a dedicated true crime podcast woman, the way that so many are these days.
0: Uh, Well, you know, there was not podcast in the 90s, so no.
1: Hmm. But they didn't like him. Did they have TV shows that sort of thing? Do what? Maybe they had TV shows or that sort of thing. I just noticed that that's very much a trend. That's just so much a trend now.
0: No crime shows in the 90s. Everybody knows.
1: Okay. Yeah, that no, that's not true because it was America's Hmm. Most Wanted. I still remember it. Oh right. And there was cops. Mm. Sing it for me.
0: I don't know the music.
1: Yes, you do. Do not. Bad boys. bad.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I do know that song.
1: Come on. What you gonna do? What (laughs) you gonna do when they come for you? (laughs) I'll make you sing it later. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's get into the interview. Ready?
0: Ready. Thank you so much, James. You are awesome. I am so excited to have you here on Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. Now, um, you are James R. Fitzgerald. And that is, you're the only James R. Fitzgerald who is an FBI guy. And um, here's why I'm so excited to have you and what what the audience needs to know is that you're the dude, you're, you're the man who ended up coming up with the information to catch the Unabomber. And um, I can't wait to talk about it because you're a pioneer in forensic linguistics and so um you've written a couple books uh several books a journey to the center of the mind was it one two and three is that right that's and- that's
2: correct yes yeah so yeah, far and- book four in the in in process
0: yeah and i binged your show on netflix uh which is um manhunt unabomber and you also have an audiobook the Fits files which is fantastic like, i love it and so w- thank you so much for coming.
2: (laughs) Well, uh, Tracy, it's great to be here. Um, I've, you know, heard of your podcast before. You come highly referenced from mutual friends in the podcast world. So uh, yeah, so I'm glad to be here with you and talk to you. And of course, the listeners and even viewers are maybe watching this uh, um, on Zoom.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so I'm trying to figure out where to start. Um, Because let's, let's just, let's just jump into the, to the Unabomber case. And, you know, I'm a body language expert. And so, um, I'm, I'm so fascinated by knowing more than is immediately obvious about, um, about, about people. And, and while, so this Unabomber case took 17 years to, to solve, right? So at at what year did you come into the investigation? um and, and how did you let's start about that how, how did you get there first because uh, because you were in the tv show they called you a what a graffiti team uh <laughs> cop like like weren't very flattering and then all of a sudden you end up on the unabomber so what what happened
2: Yeah, it's amazing what Hollywood does when they take your stories. And of course, I interviewed the director and the writer on the Fitz Files, Mm -hmm. and they really have a lot of information and how they synthesize my whole story. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had copies of my first two books. Uh, Book one is about growing up in Philly and, you know, the adventures of a profiler as a young man, Uh, and then going off to the uh, Penn State University, and then the Pennsylvania State Police Academy It ends Mm -hmm. there. All of book two is my uh, 11 years as a police officer in ben salem township book three a journey to the center of the mind starts off first day at the fbi academy in quantico and it uh and it it lays out my next uh seven years in new york city manhunt unabomber sort of skipped over that whole part they went from fitz the graffiti cop uh to unabomb task force But there was a whole uh, seven years in New York City. But it's interesting. I do put in book two, Mm -hmm. again, this is my police officer years, that uh, for about two years, there was a bad political scene uh, in my Ben Salem Police Department, It's suburban Philadelphia. And uh, I was a detective sergeant, but the one chief came in, fired the other. Politics came. The other chief was then fired. And the other one brought back. And uh, I was really being screwed with And they found one way to screw with me, even though I was detective sergeant, I had almost completed my master's at Villanova University, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't important enough to, um, to work any real cases. So I'm the boss of the detectives, but they'd only allow me to work, uh, graffiti and, uh, criminal mischief cases, Uh broken windows, whatever. And, uh, for at least for a while, that was my assignment. They eventually put me into the evident locker, but, um, but there were a number of goons and, and other uh, very questionable character people in charge at this one time. And they really tested my mettle back then. And, um, but I fought back and wound up hiring a lawyer, suing them, changed the politics of the whole department. Uh-huh. And it's been great ever since. Then I left a year and a half later to uh-huh. join the FBI. They didn't realize the whole time I was, uh, you know, I'd also applied to the FBI and went from there. So, yeah. So then Quantico, uh, 16 weeks in training, New York City bank robbery squad, uh kidnappings you name all kinds of violent crime cases within the five boroughs of new york and then i put in for a promotion at quantico to the profiling unit Mm -hmm. i get appointed there 12 more weeks of training there in behavior crime scene analysis Mm -hmm. concepts of profiling interesting that john douglas we all know john douglas one of the founders of criminal profiling Mm -hmm. he was retiring this is now uh june of 1995 And I'm just starting as a profiler. And remember, he did a two-hour presentation. One of his last presentations as an FBI agent and certainly profiler was on the Unabomb case. I had no idea. I was weeks away from being assigned to it full time. And it was an interesting passing of the torch from Douglas to me, even though we didn't technically know there was a torch involved at that point. So yeah, um, I go out to San... They wanted uh, a profiler in San Francisco for 30 days. Mm-hmm. And I said, I guess I can do 30 days in San Fran. And um, I. Because you're,
0: you're away from your family, right? Because they, it they was. It, kind it, of a it was tough. And I, had been, yeah.
2: I had been away already. And the show, the, the, the Manhunt Unabomber, it's a little confusing. There's kind of some temporal issues there, uh, as well as spatial in mm-hmm. terms of where I am with my family. Because uh, I had actually moved from suburban Philly to, uh, to, uh, to Virginia to be a profiler. Then they shipped me out to uh, San Francisco. So I wasn't right there. Well, I know there's some scenes in the miniseries. And I explained this in the Fitz files right. where, you know, my then wife or my kids like, you know walk into the office or whatever. And that, that wouldn't have happened quite that way. But yeah, so uh, I get shipped out to uh, San Francisco for 30 days. And on the way out, I found an acrostic. And I know that? you know what an acrostic is. Actually,
0: Tracy. I don't. <laughs> That's a new word.
2: <laughs> um, it's an actually an older term going back into, uh, you know, well into the history of, of, of uh, literary devices and literature. Uh-huh. And it's basically, um, it's a hidden message that's generally written uh, vertically on a page. Uh, in other words, from top to bottom, like the very first set of letters or the first letters in a paragraph oh, right, it could right. be the last letters mm-hmm. uh on 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 lines and paragraphs but it's usually the first letter and i found that on a on one of the early unabom letters the 1985 letter to dr mcconnell on the flight out i was i was curing myself up to learn everything i could about Unibomb flight mm-hmm. from the dc to san francisco and i had this big thick three ring binder and i just put it down about a half hour from landing and it just opens it as one letter and I'm I'm kind of tired from reading all these things sure. for comprehension purposes. I just kind of look back, and in a way, I, uh, this is kind of a skill I have. I can't truly explain it. I don't I don't say I have a photographic memory, but it seems sometimes my brain can take a picture of something. Oh, cool! <clears throat> and I'm kind of looking at this document mm-hmm. again. This 85 unibomb letter to a, a University of Michigan professor mm-hmm. to trick him into opening a package in which a device is located, an explosive device. And I look at this thing again, taking kind of a mental picture, and there in the left-hand column, what do I see? The words "dad." It is I. Okay. Wow.
0: Oh, that's. Let me check some of these other
2: documents. Mm -hmm. All right, nothing like that on these so far. And the plane's slowly coming for a landing, and I had to kind of close things up. But I walk into the office, you know, like the second day I'm there getting over my jet lag, whatever. And Hey boss, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Nice to see you fits. You know, here's your office, here's your desk. You'll work with this person. Yeah. By the way, uh, what do you guys think of the 85 uh, letter and dad, it is I, what are you talking about? This is 1995, by the way, uh-huh, yeah, 10, ten years, years after that letter was received and sent to the lab for all kinds of analysis. What are you talking about? This is the big boss. I said, well, you know, dad, it is I, the first it's called an acrostic, um, um <clears throat> Uh, Lewis Carroll, the author, used to use it. Uh, e. E. Cummings, I think. Edgar Allan Poe, they'd hide it in poems and, and things like that. So what do you, and I actually showed him a copy of the letter. We never saw this before. Hey, hey, get the team together right now in my office. And they get me hit, and he hits a speaker call for a Department of Justice in D.C. Uh-huh. They get the top lawyer assigned to the UniBomb case. And they, hey, we got this new profile here. Did anybody ever see dad at his eye? Fitz, tell him what it means. And I'm sitting here brand new, not knowing anyone else in the room. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not exactly sure what it means. Right. But this is a clue that language may mean something to this guy. He may have daddy or parent issues of mm-hmm. some sort. And we didn't know Ted Kaczynski from Adam at this point. Right. We're just generally trying to figure out who is this guy who's been successfully bombing and killing people now for 17 years. And the bottom line is, I'm talking to people in headquarters. I said, look, I'm a new profiler. I know that people, when they write and communicate, their true nature and their mm-hmm. life history in many ways will come out. And it's detectable if you know what to look for. And, um, and they, this is amazing. So he must have a father issue. Huh? I said, well, it's, it's possible. Long story short, the phone call ended. The big boss, Jim Freeman, the special mm-hmm. agent in charge, looked at me. Fitz, you're in charge of all the documents here. The manifesto was just received. So you're going to be, I know you're a profiler. You can do your profiling stuff too, but I want you to focus on all these documents. And, uh, and cause this, this find what you, this data it is. I think no one has seen this in 10 years. Wow. Now, and, now
0: let's, uh, can, can I back up just a little bit? Let's back up a little bit because did you have like, what was your master's in? Wasn't it something in linguistics or <clears throat> It, did I, did I get that wrong?
2: Well, you're uh, in the right church, but um, you're still in the back of the church. My first <laughs> master's, my first master's was in organizational psychology. That's from Villanova okay. university. I attained that while I was a police officer. Mm-hmm. So I had a decent background in psychology and, mm-hmm. you know, organizational psychology, etc. <clears throat> and I brought that with me to the profile. And that certainly was a plus. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, Besides a two-hour training block at the academy by a fellow FBI agent uh, named Sue Adams in the in the um, in the field called statement analysis, right? <clears throat> and I was I was very fascinated with what she had to do uh, and what she was teaching. She eventually got a PhD. She does a lot of work with nine one one calls nowadays mm-hmm. nowadays. Yep. So. Um, I said, oh, this is pretty interesting, pretty interesting. So the concept of, yeah, language does mean something. And let me go back a little bit in my New York FBI days. Mm -hmm. I worked a lot of cases with bank robbery notes Mm -hmm. and, um, and other kidnapping type notes. Mm -hmm. I mean, the kidnappings were almost always bogus. They were like drug ripoffs or someone's paying off their indentured servitude from one country to another. Uh Um, but, um, Um, But I would still look at these notes, and I would uh, assess them, and I would connect some of them that we didn't connect in other ways. So I always felt an affinity and and an interest and a a talent, quite frankly, Mm -hmm. in analyzing language, even from sort of an amateurish perspective. And in case Mm -hmm. we forget later on, yes, I did go back to school uh, in early 2000, actually in 2000, and uh, for five years at Georgetown University. And I attained my second master's degree in linguistics. There we but go. the whole UniBomb case, uh, I had no formal academic training oh, really? at all in language science, linguistics. You know what I would do? I would go to the bookstores. And even within the FBI, they had the old-fashioned dictionaries. Yeah. I mean, most people go online now, but uh-huh. they were thick books. But in like the first 20 pages of a dictionary, it's a really good summary of, of language and how it works and the English language. And I would actually pick up a few different dictionaries when I first got to UniBombs. I got to learn, how does language even work? I mean, I know, yeah, we express, we receive, there's different languages. Oh, there's 6,000 languages around the world. Oh, that's interesting. But Mm -hmm. I'm only worried about English for now. Uh, You know, I said there's native English speakers, non-native, but, you know, very preliminary, very early in my career. But I realized there's a whole science behind this stuff. This is 95, 96. I never heard the term forensic linguistics. I had never used it while on the UniBomb case. Mm-hmm. Um, it came up in the miniseries because the, the writers just add things like that sure. to it. Yeah. And that concept was around. There were some academic types in the oh, US okay. and in the UK working with language and working um, you know, with defense attorneys, working in the corporate world, trademark copyrights. Hmm. I didn't coin the term forensic linguistics. Someone else did, okay. but it wasn't long after Unabom when um, I, I started working with people uh, who, if, not, if they weren't actual linguists, they were, uh, they were working in the area of language analysis. And, uh, and I realized that term, and then it just sort of mushroomed. I became the FBI's expert after Unabom, whether I <laughs> really wanted that or not. Uh, and, but I didn't really consider myself an expert until in the field until 2005. When I actually picked up my diploma.
0: Oh, wow. Uh, but Georgetown. you figured it out. That's what I love. That's so cool. So let's let's talk because there was a I mean, the stories you can find it online anywhere. But basically, there was a manifesto that he he wrote, which was it's like, what was it? It was a, it was really long. Um.
2: Well, he never called it a manifesto. The media okay. picked up uh, or used that word. And really, you know, the rest of us did, too. He called uh-huh. it his article. And okay. he, of course, is the Unabomber. Mm-hmm. We didn't know his name yet. Right. And uh, oh, yeah, I have these numbers memorized after all these years 35,000 words, 56 pages, uh, 212 paragraphs, 26 notes. Oh, my gosh. A corrections page in uh-huh. the beginning. And um, uh, single space, by the way, uh, typewritten on a 1930s era Smith Corona typewriter. Uh, and uh, it wasn't the easiest missive to read and to try to get through in one day. Very dense, very well written grammatically. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, rich vocabulary, uh, references to um, to other scientific principles mm-hmm. um, that uh, the Unabomber, you know, re- referred to in in his writings. But uh, but I, I found I could not go more than half of it, which was what uh, twenty seven pages or so Mm -hmm. uh, um, um, uh, per day. Mm -hmm. So I would start it, you know, I would come in on a Monday and read the first half of it and then stop and then come in the next day and start with, you know, whatever that paragraph is 110 or something and, uh, and take it from there. He numbered every paragraph too, which made it convenient for reference purposes. He numbered every page. So he um, was really nice to us in that regard. Hey, did you see a uh, paragraph, you know, 77? If you look at paragraph 180, you know, and you can mix things up yeah. that way instead of just. So,
0: so, so you're reading references. this,
2: what are you looking
0: for? What, like, what are like four or five things that, that you're just like, these are the things we need to look for, or like, is that how your mind worked or what? how, how did you go about it?
2: Yeah. Um, because I had some basic, uh, you know, training um, not basic training military-wise, right, but, but you know, yeah. the FBI put me through profiling uh, school mm-hmm. for 12 weeks and uh you know, a two-hour course on statement analysis. But there are other some notes and letters and interviews with uh with serial offenders that I uh, witnessed, mm-hmm. uh, you know, videos of them, whatever. So uh to me, um I realize there are about half a dozen profiles already made of this guy. John Douglas was the author of most of them, and he really wasn't far off, but he didn't really have the benefit of the manifesto, which gave us such more, uh, so much more insight mm-hmm. into the heart and soul, not to mention the mind, of uh, yeah. of our Unibomb person. It's one thing having ruse letters. The first two letters were ruse letters to trick the recipients of the packages to open them, but then starting in 93, the next 12 letters, including the manifesto, uh, we're all ideologically based on the mm-hmm. human bombers part. So really trying to dig into what was honest, what was truthful, what was legitimate, what was not, what was a smoke screen, mm-hmm. what was misinformation, what was being said, and what is most, and just as importantly, what's not being said. Mm-hmm. I'm using the word said here in terms of sure. verbalization, written, but what's, yeah. what's written and what's not written. And, um, you know, in my first three months there, I, my first uh, stint at the task force was from early July through mid-December of 95. And unlike the miniseries, I was not fired from the task force or, or thrown out, uh, you know, unceremoniously, okay. it was just time. I kind of finished my, my 30 days there extended yeah. to, uh, you know, three and a half, four and a half months, I think. And, um, five and a half months. And I just said my bosses in Quantica said, we need you back here too. And, um, Cause then I went back in February and everything came together at that point. But what I was looking for were just clues to this person's, um, personal makeup.
3: Mm-hmm. I
2: mean, wh- he was an excellent writer, made no mistakes. If he did, he, he crossed them out. You know, he X them out with the old fashioned typewriter Yeah, uh, and just wrote, you know, uh, the word or two afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, he, there was really no punctuation spelling errors. Um, the grammatically uh, uh, you know written and complex and compound sentences uh, well-defined beginning middle and uh, it doesn't even focus on the bombings in it there's only one quick reference I forget that there all these years exactly what paragraph I think in the 80s or 90s yeah but uh, you know uh, evils of technology evils of industrial revolution and then that paragraph just ends and for this reason we had to kill people okay. That's it. The only bombing reference was a little we? sentence. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Everything throughout was plural pronouns.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but Douglas. And then once I got involved, we were convinced it was actually one person. Uh, the we and pronoun what is very would, common.
0: What would lead you to that?
2: First of all, bombers are usually solitary individuals. Okay. They tend to work on their own, not a terrorist group, of course, mm-hmm. or the Irish Republican army back in their heyday. But, but if you're having an individual bomber, with no claim to any real known um, mm-hmm. terrorist organization or, or ideological organization. In almost every case, they're just one person. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, and also the writing styles from the earliest uh, letter in 1980 to, uh, to Percy Wood, the president of United Airlines. That was his first, uh, one of his first victims involving a letter. And, um, and the writing style was all the same. The typewriter was always the same, the laboratory Uh, confirm that for us. So um, it it just, these were the works of a loner. Mm -hmm. These were the works of an individual isolated from society. No one, Douglas, me, anyone thought this guy was living in a cabin in the middle of the woods in Montana, but we were pretty sure he didn't cope very well in society. If Mm -hmm. he had a job, he was kind of a, in the corner of a warehouse, counting widgets or or mm-hmm. maybe designing, building little things. We felt he was clever and he was good with his hands because his bombs were well-constructed. And now, not can, just so they we were Can we talk about
0: that really quick? But so they couldn't
2: be identified back to him. Yeah. Go ahead.
0: Um, I tried to look up online this morning how those bombs worked. And um, I actually couldn't find anything. And I imagine it's because people didn't want to like publish a how-to but how did? Can you give us like a clue on how they how they worked? Because it seems like there's a lot of different ways to open a package.
2: Sure, and uh, and the key they were basically pipe bombs, uh-huh. um, which of course you have a piece of uh, pipe mm-hmm. and you put explosive material in between. You have a a detonator, a fuse, a power source. You of course screw the ends on tight. And if you want to make it even more deadly, which the Unabomber did as time went on, he put broken glass around yeah. it, uh, shrapnel, uh, little tacks. So they were designed to do nothing but uh, rip flesh. Yeah. And he was very successful in his uh, later bombings. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, there was a plunger device, uh, a little spring mechanism in each one. That one, either the box was open, a, a lid came up, or, um, or somehow it was moved, You know, flipped over upside down. That's when the, uh, uh, the power source, uh, hit on the, uh, uh, the fuse, sure. which then went into the detonator, which then caused a little tiny, uh, bang, which then hit the explosive material. And the whole thing then blew up because it's ah. all tightly packed uh-huh. in a pipe or something like that. And it had to have some way to escape. And that's when it, uh, it just scattered into, you know, a thousand pieces. So that's how his device was put together, and. uh, uh, ammonium, uh, ammonium chlorate, I believe, was uh, one of the main devices he used, which is commercially available. Mm-hmm. And uh, but he would have, when we finally raided his, uh, arrested him, and and opened up his cabin and took everything out of there, including the bomb making materials. We found a whole thick binder of his experiments. Oh. He would label at the top of each page, experiment number, you know, one oh five, experiment uh-huh. number two twenty two. I mean, it actually went up that high. And these were all chemical formulations and quantity of materials, batteries, you know, uh, you know tape, uh, uh, glue made from deer hooves. Oh That's how he made his glue. Huh. And uh, to put these things together, mm-hmm. again, no fingerprints at all, no traceable evidence found in any of these devices. So um, and it's that it's that it's the paradigm or that maybe juxtaposition is a better word. Of the fact that his devices were so pristine, Uh meaning of of any sort of forensic evidence, anything which could link him to any part of the country or any sort of of occupation or personality, whatever. All that we knew is they were now being strictly mailed from the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm -hmm. That's the only sort of spatial context we had. But where I was going with this was the bombs were pristine, no fingerprints, DNA, Mm -hmm. hairs and fibers, nothing about them. Uh, The labels, the, you know, the wrappings, nothing. But here that my second month at the UTF, Unabomb Task Force, this is around August of 95, I'm getting more in depth into some of his writings, the Unabomber's writing Mm -hmm. some letters he's sending to the New York Times. And I'm all of a sudden saying, whoa. He's giving he's giving some autobiographical information here even in an indirect form. Oh. And that is a letter that he wrote actually to a Yale professor, one of his victims who lost part of his hand. Uh-huh. You know, salt on the wound. A couple of months later, he gets a letter in the mail addressed to him. It wasn't a bomb this time, but it was a very snarky, nasty letter to him criticizing a book he wrote. He was a computer scientist and uh-huh. the evils of computers whatever. But in that particular letter, um, it starts off with uh, something like, I guess people without advanced degrees don't count. Okay, interesting. And then about uh, the next paragraph, about 10 lines later, uh, apparently, if you don't have a college degree, you're not smart. People don't think you're smart or or Mm -hmm. you don't think we're smart. And... So if you read this, it was very carefully worded and mm-hmm. perfectly constructed grammatically. But the person who's written this, the Unabomber, is really saying, I don't have, number one, an advanced degree. right? And number two, I don't have a college degree. Right. Now, it's written in a negated form and not just a declarative sentence. Mm-hmm. I don't have a college. But I'm looking at this and saying, all right. So by reading this, this guy is telling us he doesn't have any college education, or at least not a degree. Mm -hmm. Wow. He's giving us really one of our first clues about himself, but then it hit me again. Wait a minute. If this guy is leaving no trace of who he is Mm -hmm. on the devices themselves, the bombs, Mm -hmm. why is he now volunteering this information here? And that's when I coined a term, I didn't make up this word, but I think I'm one of the first to apply it to Uh linguistic analysis. Uh And that is, this is a contra indicator, meaning this is against indications, Whatever is being written here is purposely being inserted and worded this way to point sort of in an opposite direction to throw you off of who the person really is. Mm -hmm. And I went back and looked at some other letters of his and one to the New York Times in the same 94, Mm -hmm. 1994 timeframe said, uh, so we have a deal to offer again, always we, this is when he first started talking about publishing the manifesto. Mm -hmm. I'll cease from bombing if you publish my article. But uh, we have a deal to offer because we're getting tired um, going into the Sierra Nevada, into the Sierra Nevadas after work and on weekends to practice our craft, meaning to work on his bombs. All bombers always have practice runs. They do. Whenever I do in the media about a current serial Mm -hmm. bomber case, I said, all right, the first one you think you have, there's been other ones before that in the woods, in a, an abandoned warehouse somewhere. Mm-hmm. That's what you have to look for that evidence. So we knew the Unabomber at some point was practicing these things, but why volunteer he lives in California near the Sierra Nevadas, mm-hmm. okay, in the mountain range. And why tell us that essentially he has a nine to five Monday through Friday job. And we said, either he's not working or he works a late shift, including weekends. This guy is too smart to give away even these little clues. And I get it. Your listeners may be saying, well, what would that really tell you? It doesn't give his name and address. Yeah, but you know what? When basically every male in the US is your suspect, adult male, uh, to know that someone probably now has an advanced degree Mm -hmm. at some level, you know, master's, maybe PhD, and that he doesn't live in the Sierra Nevada region and uh, he doesn't have this type of a job. Guess what? You've just narrowed your suspect pool down. No, it doesn't give a name or address, Mm -hmm. but guess what? When other investigators come to you, other FBI agents or whomever from around the country, hey, we have these 10 guys on our list here. Maybe you want to be, you know, they have this little interesting background. Mm -hmm. All right, well, who doesn't live in California Mm -hmm. and who does have an advanced degree? That's the person is your priority. doesn't mean you got to arrest them based on that, Mm -hmm. but you can prioritize that person. So you kind of asked early on this whole question was, what was I looking for? It was features like that, that I could see to be almost autobiographical. And what also was autobiographical from another negated sense in all of his writings, he never wrote about having kids or being a parent or even in a relationship.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: He worried a little bit about women and men and women, but you could tell it was almost from a, a, an amateurish amateurish perspective Mm -hmm. in that this guy didn't really know. And again, no one's expecting him to tell us his wife's name or, you know his kids' names, whatever, but there's like no reference to that at all. And, and we started, you know, really, um, you know, focusing our profile on this guy. Maybe not only is he not in a current relationship, but he maybe never's really been in one, and doesn't have any kids either mm-hmm. um, because of, uh, of of this. I, um, so I, I, that's one part. like there's some other things I can go into, but maybe you have a question. I do have
0: others. a question. I look like I have a question.
2: <laughs> you do big <laughs> so, question mark on top, of yeah, on top
0: of my head. So, um, here's what I'm curious about is in the show, uh, the Manhunt Unabomber show, it seemed like the agency was, or at least your bosses were kind of against you. In in this whole thing. And I I was wondering if they wrote that in for the drama of it, Uh, almost like they didn't like you had this cute little thing you were doing and they didn't really give you a lot of, uh, I don't know, respect for what you were doing and how you were approaching things because there was other people approaching it from different ways as, as well. So can you speak to that just a little bit?
2: Yeah, that, um, and I mentioned that in the Fitch Files uh, and in my, because um, my third book, uh, mm-hmm. A Journey to the of of the Mind, the whole last long paragraph is my role in the Unabomb case. And I got along relatively well with uh, the bosses uh, mm-hmm. at the UTF, Unabomb Task Force. Uh, there was one or two people there, part of the team. They invited me into their team. I was a supervisor, supervisory special agent. So I was part of their management team. We met every morning. And there's one or two times that I had some, uh, discussion there's at least one person uh, uh, on the team who didn't want the manifesto published mm-hmm. and I was one of the first ones to come forward and say I think it should be there's enough idiosyncratic and distinctive language someone's going to recognize this somewhere mm-hmm. and this person you know definitely thought it shouldn't be and then you know months later when Kaczynski was identified <laughs> this same person now nah, it's not Ted Kaczynski it's not him I said I don't know I read everything that the family is giving us, Uh you know, his, his known writings and boy, this stuff matches up, you know, as close as it can be. No, 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 it's not him. So um, but no one was ever thrown out of a room, certainly not me Uh uh, or asked to leave the task force. I think, I I think the big boss assigned me to in charge of all the language issues, all the writings of the Unabom case, but I was doing other profiling related uh, matters while Mm -hmm. there, but of course I'm a brand new profiler. This is my first case coming out of the uh, shoot oh, man. Uh, <laughs> as a profiler was UniBomb going on for 17 years. What the heck am I going to do for uh-huh. this case? Mm-hmm. Although it was being going to be solved with nine months of me showing up there. So, um, but again, that was always a team effort. I never pretend otherwise in that regard, but, uh, but I was proud to be put in touch and uh, in, in charge of the language evidence and uh, and yeah, we even uh, we had a prosecutor assigned to the case, Steve Fruchero. Mm-hmm. I mentioned him in the book. They use his real name in the miniseries. And um, and he had some skepticism. I mean, he's a lawyer. He's looking for evidence, sure. probable mm-hmm. cause to make an arrest, to get a search for a warrant. And there's different thresholds uh, there. And we were hoping to get an arrest for Kaczynski, but we never felt that we had quite enough. And of course, there was that scene that I capture in my book. It's well captured in the mini series. Uh, in, my, in, in real life, I was actually mm-hmm. sitting at my desk with my feet up reviewing document T-137 uh-huh. and um, of, the, of the known Ted Kaczynski documents mm-hmm. that the mother and the brother were turning over to us. This is like late March of 96. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, um, and I should give a little bit of background, in paragraph 185 of the manifesto um, is uh, you know, just a benign, regular paragraph, the evils of technology and all that stuff. And it ends with, but you can't eat your cake and have it too.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And I picked up on that and I actually ran it by someone at the task. Yeah, we saw that. Whatever. Mm-hmm. I said, well, whatever. This is really unusual. And mm-hmm. this is pre-internet or I guess the internet was around, but there wasn't a whole lot of searching you could do on it back in 95, 96. Yeah. It was said, kind of
0: you, brand new to the world. Then
2: you can't eat your cake and have it too. Boy, I've heard that. And I actually did a, I'm not even sure back then how I did the research, but uh, there's like an old big book I found somewhere on song lyrics. Mm-hmm. And I Bob Dylan's Lay Lady Lay has the term, you can't have your cake and eat it too, or the expression. Right. There's an old four season song. You know, they're singing, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Yeah. Yeah. That's how uh, we say it. And, and that's how we say it. And I did find some other references and I said, this guy made no mistakes in, um, in his manifesto at all, mm-hmm. except this one. Um, and then, like I was just starting to tell you, I'm sitting at my desk, March of 96, my feet are up, all of a sudden this letter comes in, routine, I'm number. I'm the first one to see these copies, mm-hmm. I'm numbering them, I pass them off to my team that I was in charge of, and um, to search throughout all the other, you know, Unibom documents, and I'm just coming to the end, ready to like put it on the pile, and there it is again, uh, you can't eat your cake and have it too, uh-huh. except this letter to the Saturday evening magazine from the early 1970s, was signed by Theodore J. Kaczynski. There we have a name within two inches at the Uh bottom of this letter to the editor that luckily his mother or brother saved all Mm -hmm. these years later. And that was our link. And that's when I ran down to Steve Frichero, the prosecutor, and I got. actually said, let's let's meet in the boss's office. Mm -hmm. I called everyone together. Remember this paragraph 185 from the manifesto? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Can't eat your cake? Look what I just found on T-137. Uh-huh. And that's when a bunch of holy s's came out. Yeah, and uh, and uh, and the prosecutor said, "I think we now have our linguistic smoking gun." I forget if he said that or mm-hmm. someone else. Yeah, and uh, I said, "I think we have enough for a search warrant, uh, even if not an arrest warrant, but a search warrant for the cabin. Let's write it up." And then, of course, that's when CBS News got involved. They had mm-hmm. a There was a leak in the case, and we had yeah. to rush everything within three days to get it there. It wasn't quite as dramatic as the miniseries showed where we had, I think, Dan Rather supposedly gave director free, you know, one day to put everything together. Uh, Dan Rather was nice enough to give us three days
0: oh, nice <clears> day. to
2: put everything together.
0: Yeah. And we did. <clears throat> wow. So then... Um- was it because was, you had other people that were kind of in mind too. And so all of a sudden you get this smoking gun and was it just, let's go to Montana or how, how did, how did that?
2: Yeah. And people forget that. And, and I've even had experienced investigators around the country. Well, the brother gave you, gave him up. Right. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah. All right. So you're working some bank robbery cases. A guy calls you. Yeah. My brother's committing the bank robberies. <clears throat> Do you go out and arrest the brother without probable cause? Mm-hmm. No, you have to build your case. Right. And especially a case like this, which was under the microscope and the manifesto had been released. So, yeah, in the summer of 95, we had twenty five hundred separate suspects in the Unabomber case. Wow. Now, not everyone had a name attached to it. these are uh-huh. calls we get. These are, you know, f- guys that were Hotline. in you know, military yeah. demolition uh, or, or law enforcement bomb squad guy or mm-hmm. whatever. And, and they basically all washed out. And I actually got sent back because the suspect pool kind of started dwindling. I was sent some documents and I was back in Quantico in January and February of that year, uh, early February. Then finally this sort of infamous 23 page document got sent to me, uh, faxed to me. I was told nothing else about it. And that's when I saw that document Mm -hmm. as basically an outline. I said, it's either an elaborate plagiarism or it's basically the outline of the manifesto to be written years later. And they said, you're coming back. It's not a plagiarism, Fitz. You're coming back to San Francisco. So, uh, but yeah, there were other suspects, you know, none of them all that good. There was a professor in Chicago. Mm-hmm. I forget it. What school, Northwestern or University of Chicago, he read the manifesto and it was published in the Washington Post. And he was convinced he had a student from the seventies that wrote just like that. He lived mm-hmm. in suburban Chicago and now our profile from Douglas and me too. Later on, we were sure the Unabomber's roots were uh, Chicago. Yeah. We we sort of determined that because a serial offender almost always, almost, not all the time, but in in many cases, strikes in his comfort zone, his area of familiarity. So, and the first four bombings uh, originated in Chicago. Oh, really? Okay. The Unabomber case Mm -hmm. from 78 to 80. And uh, the writing style was determined to reflect Chicago area newspapers from the 40s 50s and yeah, 60s yeah so we have that and then um, um, this professor just was insistent but he never he didn't have the student's name I think he may have been retired oh. he kept some of his records I think some of his records were lost either in a flood sure. or a fire yeah but we were he went to the kid's house once and met his parents so the agents in Chicago drove him up and down every street. In these neighborhoods, he thought oh, boy. this kid would have lived. Oh, it may have been that house. So we found out who lived there 20 plus years ago. Oh, try And, tra- and it, it was a whole. So he was like our biggest lead uh-huh. for about three months. And then finally, I forget what happened at the end, but this professor just started speaking gibberish. And he told someone, well, he, he was never that convinced it was him after all. But, but there's oh. some like nail on his coffin, figuratively uh-huh. speaking i said all right this has been a wild goose chase chase. nothing there oh my goodness
3: and other names
2: here there and the other and i remember you know was it the zodiac killer Uh unabomb i would have this uh you know discussion with people there uh was it a dungeons and dragons person that game that now it's a video or it's played online yeah but there was more like a board game back then but Uh interactive and these fraternities would play each other and uh you know, uh, you know wasn't retired law enforcement, wasn't retired military, wasn't a laid off airline mechanic. Yeah. There's a whole squad set up uh, because the, 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 there was a bunch of airline mechanics laid off in the late seventies. Uh, airlines were the early bombing victims, including mm-hmm. Percy Wood, president of United Airlines. So there's a whole squad of like five agents. When I got to the task force, that's all they did. Every laid off airline mechanic. And of course the bombs are put together with tools and someone with mechanical insight, yeah, yeah. whatever. So, um, we were looking into that too. And, uh, but all of those names fizzled, they would give me some writings of these people if they got uh-huh. them known writings. And I would just say, no, Not the same. To the manifesto.
0: wow. So, so the, um, uh, FBI goes out there, you're back in your office and do you know, it was the, um, the scene where they pulled him out of the cabin, was that about accurate or was it uh, did it go did it go that way? Do you know or was yeah? It
2: that they they uh, and that was a big argument I had because one thing in law enforcement, you never claim an arrest you didn't make. Mm-hmm. I have a guy from the Ben Salem PD. Now he has a he wrote a comment on my book. Uh-huh. He, he was one of the, the goon squad members. He's claiming to make an arrest of a priest. That I, that I actually oh. made myself. Uh-huh. So you learn early on in law enforcement, you can say some things about your, your career, whatever. And I just tell the truth in my books and all, uh-huh. but uh, there's, um, uh, you don't lie about an arrest you made. So mm-hmm. here the writers of the case, uh, of, the writers of Man on Unabomber, they wanted to have me, the one on the door, uh-huh. dragging him out, my character, of course, played by Sam Worthington. I fought them tooth and nail and said, do not show that scene. I uh-huh. do not want it. I was not in Helen at the time. They kept me back to do mm-hmm. last. I was doing important stuff last minute, you know, uh, editing and additions yeah. to the warrant we were putting together uh-huh. and the probable cause affidavit. So my job was just as important as the guy. So the scene they show, they did bring in a local uh, park ranger uh-huh. and he did know Ted. They had met over the years once or twice. And it was a very logical way. They're discussing property lines and all that stuff. But uh, but I yeah, so I, I lost the argument. Because as you know, if you listen to the Fitz files or read my book, there was no interaction. Fitz had no interaction right. with Ted Kaczynski. Yeah. It didn't happen. No FBI agent did. They sat with him for a few hours after the arrest and it, it got blown uh, and he just went off and never he didn't want to talk to his attorneys Kaczynski sure. didn't for you know, the first few months right. they were assigned to him. But I lost that argument. No, we have to put you to a list actors. we got to put you in the same scene. Yeah, all right. All right. Whatever. But don't uh. put me on the arrest scene. So Uh the arrest how it went down was pretty logical. Now, the only thing is um, they have Kaczynski uh, portrayed, of course, by Paul Bettany sitting in like a tent and he's watching some closed circuit TV of the Mm -hmm. robot going through. Yeah, Uh, he may have seen the robot because there was a robot on the scene. Uh And I say robot. These are very this is a mid 90s sort of not that sophisticated bomb uh, uh, seeking uh, robot Mm -hmm. uh, that could be controlled remotely. So uh, he probably saw that when he came out of his cabin in handcuffs, but they made it a little more dramatic in the, uh, uh, in the series. In the but, show, uh, yeah. Yeah. But I would say about the series, if you take out the scenes and there's a number of scenes uh-huh. with Fitz and Kaczynski, they pretty much got everything else. Right. So oh, I always wow. tell people for a Hollywood production, it's about 85% accurate. Just take out those scenes. And, uh, and they were, the writers were clever. They, these were questions. I would have asked Ted. Uh-huh. when I was going to interview him in 2007, uh-huh. a long list of questions. And, and I, and some of the scenarios that the Fitz character laid out portrayed by Sam were, were off those list of questions and, and my sort of interview strategy, which never happened by the way, Ted canceled the last minute. Oh, wow. um, this is long after he was arrested, but so they did kind of borrow from what I would have asked him. Mm-hmm. And they had the writings of Ted from his uh, cabin, his autobiography, and some of the things that were in those documents and those writings of his, they put into uh, Paul Bettany's mouth to speak as the Unibon. Ah. So even though the scenes were fictionalized, they did borrow from sort of real life, but just different context. Mm-hmm. And then just kind of conflated the two. So, oh, wow. but they made sure uh, I made sure I said, in fact, I will back out of this whole uh, affair uh, and I won't have anything to do with it. If you insist that, you know, uh, Fitz is there making. Oh, the wow. arrest. Because that's one thing you don't do in law enforcement. Uh you can, you know, brag about other things, whatever, but uh but there's one police. So In fact, his son is on this PD now and mm-hmm. they still talk about this this uh, this thing, and it's just an out and out lie. And uh it just shows you the lack of uh the lack of integrity some people have. So uh-huh. that wasn't going to be Fitz in this mini-series. Oh, I'll let boy. the interview scenes go by, which I really I still fought against, uh-huh. but uh, they were relatively benign. I understood the dramatic element behind there. Mm-hmm. And I know you'd listen to the Fitz files. I think the director. And the writer explained those those scenes really well. Like I really meant,
0: enjoyed that What
2: it meant for the audience to yeah. kind of be brought into the mind of both uh, of both people. I mm-hmm. also want to throw out here too, it's important. Uh, the other two scenes I, I didn't really know about and they may look like minor, but if you look in the very beginning of Manhunt Unabomber, Tracy, mm-hmm. you have this bearded guy with long hair living in the woods, carrying a dead rabbit. And yeah. everyone's supposed to think that's Kaczynski. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's you find out that's Fitz because Fitz was so disturbed after the arrest of the Unabomber. He got so much in his mind that he had to go off and live in a cabin by Uh himself. Uh, Never happened. Never
0: happened. Literary license.
2: Wasn't me. (laughs) I had no PTSD then or now. Uh Mm -hmm. Uh, If anything, I'm a beach guy. I like living at the beach. I said, let Uh, me in my beach house in Southern New Jersey. But well, no, no, we have to have cabin. And the other thing is uh, I, maybe episode was it five or seven? I forget, <clears throat> but they have Fitz takes his two sons, two older sons to a movie.
0: Yeah. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs>
2: and he gets paged and um, he goes to the pay phone. Hey kids, uh-huh. I'll be right back. I had to run into the office. And I never lived near my office back then or my kids mm-hmm. didn't, but that's one part of it. And the next thing you know, Fitz is on the floor with us at his office with a circle of papers around him, And these, cause this is when the, alleged 23-page mm-hmm. document, which I referenced earlier in our talk, came in. And um, and next uh, thing you know, um, and then somehow Fitz's wife comes in to an FBI-controlled space. I'm right. not sure how that would happen either. And then she starts giving it to him, deservedly so, if it actually happened. But, but uh, for the record, <laughs> I never abandoned my kids. In, I mean, they were older, like 14 and 11 uh-huh. or something. They wouldn't have, They weren't like little kids, but I said, I never did that. I never would do that. My kids got a kick. Dad, I don't remember that. If that happened, I said, no, it didn't. It didn't. So uh, they realized how that whole thing worked out. So the, have... through through the big personal scenes, I wanted to make sure that the your listeners know did not happen.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're a good guy. We know that. So, OK, one last question. That cabin now, because you got to see the cabin, didn't you?
2: Which cabin, the real one or the Hollywood one?
0: The, did you see the real one? <laughs>
2: Oh yeah, yeah, and my yeah. book and on my website, jamesrfitzgerald.com, mm-hmm. um, uh, under the Fitz Files tab, I have a bunch of pictures uh, from each episode,
3: mm-hmm.
2: either from the the Hollywood version of the story or the real life version.
3: Mm-hmm. So yeah,
2: and I actually compare. I put next to uh, on the website, and I have a PowerPoint that I do pictures of me uh, at the Kaczynski's cabin in April of '96. Mm-hmm. I did show up on scene three days later, so he was arrested April third. I was there April 6th and I was uh, I was part of the team that was going over all the documents we found in the cabin mm-hmm. and uh, others removed it and everything with the gloves and they went sure. to the laboratory for fingerprints, but we got the first copies of them. And, uh, and I was my job to review 1,000 separate documents inside the cabin. Oh boy. So I was inside there. And then uh, I later got pictures of the cabin before mm-hmm. it was all, I'm just like the bomb stuff was the dangerous stuff was removed, but nothing else. I took some good pictures like, you know, left wall, right wall, front wall, back wall. And, um, and I have those too. And I provided those to the uh, set decorator. And again, if you listen to Fitz files, Mm -hmm. we have the property master set decorator, two very different jobs and two very interesting people in putting together something like a mini series, such as manhunt Unabomber. And they were so appreciative. Mm -hmm. They were so appreciative of the pictures I sent them of the outside as well as the inside I even had a schematic of the measurements mm-hmm. and um, and they were appreciative. And I'll tell you at the, there were two premier parties in uh, uh, July and I guess early August of mm-hmm. uh, ninety of uh, 2017. And they had the cabin at both of them, the, oh, the they fake did. Hollywood cabin, of uh-huh. course. <clears throat> and they transported it from New York to LA and it was amazing. Uh, well, I, I saw it on the set too. But it was amazing in Atlanta because everything was shot in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. But it was amazing what these guys did and how they made it look. The only thing they told me, they made it a little bit higher because Paul Bettany mm-hmm. in real life is about 6'3". Kowinski okay. Okay. was only 5'10". So they made the ceiling a little bit higher. And they made uh, they had two separate cabins, one where a wall could come out. They could slide it out on a track okay. so they could hook the camera up and shoot the interior right, shots. Right, right. But the other one was um, the same size. And it didn't have the removable wall, um, but it um, um, but it was like, I'm sorry, it wasn't the same size. It was about two feet wider. The actual cabin was 10 by 12. I think the Hollywood one was 12 by 12. Wow. Just so they could get a camera in a little bit more. But if you look, uh, go on my website, uh, Tracy, and of course, who's ever watching or yeah, listening. Yeah,
0: jamesrfitzgerald.com. one. I, I hit the tab I, I, for yeah, Fitz files. Yeah, I went there and I did see it. Here, Here's my question about it. There did not seem to be any insulation, and there did not seem to be any windows, so uh, or at least meaningful windows. So, was there heat in there? What's what happened?
2: Yes, there was insulation and one window, because okay. Ted and his brother David built it together in 1972, mm-hmm. and they used some kind of—I'm uh, not sure—a fiberglass asbestos insulation, but they definitely. He knew enough they needed insulation inside it. And it had one, it had no running water, mm-hmm. no electricity. This is truly living off the grid. You hear yeah. that term now before it was probably used back then. He did have a wood burning stove. So a simple stove with a chimney mm-hmm. went out the roof and he would chop his own trees down, uh, obviously in the warmer weather. Yeah. And uh, he would you know stack them up and they would be ready for, um, for the colder weather when it got very, very cold. And he would write most of his writings and his bomb buildings took place. um, His buildings of his bombs took place in the cold weather Mm -hmm. because there wasn't a whole lot he could do. He sort of go out and hunt, but he wrote in his diary and his autobiography, there were days he actually had a, he couldn't open his door because the snow Mm -hmm. was built up so high. I mean, luckily it did open inwards, but he had to be careful. The snow didn't come in, whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, while he would use nature outside for Mm -hmm. his, uh, shall we say, his uh, bathroom needs. Yeah. In the coldest days in winter, he had a hatch in the floor of the cabin. Oh, really? Remember, it's only a 10 by 12 cabin. Yeah, yeah. And the the hatch was about two foot by two foot. And that's where he would, uh, shall we say, uh, fertilize the ground uh, immediately beneath the cabin. So um, he lived, um, he was a true, true believer. And you can't, he walked, he not only talked the talk, he did walk the walk. And I agree nothing about him killing people. And I get asked this all the time, and I'm sure mm-hmm. one of your questions, was he right about some of the things that he uh, he posited and uh-huh. he proffered in the in the manifesto? And you have to say, sure, he was. We see now where technology is going and how uh-huh. it controls us and how much they, you know, uh, they, they propagandize and put certain stories in, keep certain right, stories right. out. And everything is fact-checked, uh, which, you know, whether it should be or not, and not even getting political here, but just... Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, totally. Kaczynski was right, and others before him predicting this sort of big brother, you know, future. Yeah, um, you know, we're in it, and you know, there are some dangers that he pointed out. If only he didn't kill people, he could have gone a lot farther with oh, what, uh, totally with what he, um, you know, was postulating at the time. But, um uh, that's okay. Life.
0: One last question Do you th- and you don't have to answer it if you don't want to, do you think that? The Unabomber would have been caught without you.
2: I would be very selfish and immodest uh, to say no. So I would say mm-hmm. it's certainly possible. And mm-hmm. at the very end of my uh, third book, I do write sort of some FAQs. And one of them is would the Unabomber have been caught if David Kaczynski, his brother, did not turn him in, mm-hmm. and I wrote there, and I'll just summarize it here: Yes, I had a project in mind that I had talked to people in the Unabom Task Force about. It would have been a long-term project, not real sexy, mm-hmm. and, and pre-internet, it would have been tricky and difficult. But um, but we um, we would have uh, we would have searched. We thought we knew this guy wanted to be published, and we would have searched all the uh, artifacts. Um, archives Mm -hmm. for artifacts of, uh, of anyone who was writing about the evils of technology uh, the the disaster of the industrial revolution Mm -hmm. where people should live in tribes. And it turns out he did write a number of letters to editors in different magazines, journals. It would have been tricky. We would, we would have kind of a list of, well, here's one more. I would, now we have 20 different people Mm -hmm. in the last 30 years Mm -hmm. who've been writing these kind of letters. Let's start breaking them down, looking, the linguistic element of it, whether that would have been me or someone else, but maybe someone would have found the letter to the Saturday evening magazine
3: mm-hmm. where it
2: ended again about the environment and the right. evils of what we're doing, blah, 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 air pollution. And then you can't eat your cake and have it too. So, um, but I'll tell you what, his, 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 his identification and arrest would only have come through his language.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: He was too smart to leave fingerprints, DNA, anything like that on his devices, his mailings, whatever. It would only have to come through a linguistic analysis, whether highly advanced, whether you know mid-level, whether lower. Um, what I did was probably somewhere in the middle, looking mm-hmm. back now as a qualified court expert uh-huh. uh, in the area of forensic linguistics, there are some things I would have done different, but nothing would have changed the outcome. It would have only strengthened uh, the ultimate outcome and the probable cause, uh, the, the language of the 50 page probable cause affidavit that I authored. Oh, wow. So, well, yes, yeah. he would have been caught without me. Uh, I did not arrest him by myself. Mm-hmm. It was an FBI team effort, but I am very proud. The bosses recognized an interest of mine, uh, a skill set of mine, uh, uh, and mixing that in with my behavioral and investigative background. And and the skill set and and expertise would have been my interest in language and how I've always been an amateur linguist even Uh before I was a professional one. And that they recognized that and said, to their credit, Fitz, you're in charge of uh, the language analysis on this case. Pick the team you want. I did pick some good people to work around me, agents, analysts. And uh, together we put this this 50-page document together that brought down the Unabomber But I am glad to be the one that found that it is I. I am glad to be the one that found you can't eat your cake and have it too. the the second version of it. And uh, and that those type things really helped cement this case and uh, and convince us that uh, the language language can solve crimes. Mm -hmm. They can also exonerate people. I've worked a few cases in which someone thought someone was arrested and they thought he was guilty of a crime. I said, let's look at the language here. No, no, he's not. Oh, wow! And, uh, yeah, that's a mm-hmm. case out of New Orleans. It got a lot of headlines back in huh. 2012. So, um, wow. Uh, so, yeah, and other cases too over the years. Other linguists have worked them, mm-hmm. um, and to put people behind bars that they deserve to be, and to uh, provide uh, exculpatory evidence if that's necessary too.
0: Wow. Now, um, are you are you doing a lot of speaking these days, or what? What's uh...
2: Well, yeah. And I didn't tell you up front, but I um, if you heard the end, I think you said you're still working at the end of the Fitz files. Mm-hmm. At the very end of the Fitz files, I made an announcement. I said a few things about the victims of the case. I think it's important we do these kinds of shows. We talk about the victims, too. And we mm-hmm. kind of, you know, didn't you asked me some very specific and pointed questions and that's fine. But every true crime case, they're fun to talk about. And, and this bad guy and how did the police do this? But sometimes we gloss over the victims. There were three mm-hmm. victims murdered in this case by Kaczynski, uh, and 25 others seriously injured. So I make an announcement about that. But my my other announcement at the very end is um, is uh, that I am retiring from all things Unabom at the end of this year.
0: Are you really? Okay. So,
2: Tracy, you are one of my last Unabom interviews I'm doing, and uh, I've just it's been 25 years. I've written a, my third book has Mm -hmm. 200 pages in it about the Unabomb case. I worked with the uh, uh, Discovery Channel uh, uh, for Manhunt Unabomber, which is now on Netflix. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've done the Fitz Files Manhunt Unabomber. So what I'm telling people, my website is chock full of information. I've donated all the Unabomb papers to California University of Pennsylvania. And they're about to go online the next week or two. Oh, wow. Um, So check those out at Mm -hmm. calu.edu. So what I'm telling people is uh, after this year and my last few Unabom interviews, if you can't find the answers to your questions and everything (laughs) I've just mentioned, you probably want to write a letter to Ted Kaczynski and ask him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise
2: I think I've answered it and, um, and, and made it as clear. And, uh, and, uh, and, and factual as, as as certainly as I know, excuse me. So I think uh, that's my logic with quit. It's been 25 years since his arrest this year marks the 25 Mm -hmm. year anniversary of his arrest. So um, I'm still giving talks. I'm still going around the country, mostly Mm -hmm. by zoom now.
0: Okay. Okay. And so, and people can find you, like if they want you to speak, at at their
2: oh, sure. I do colleges, yeah. I do grad schools, I do corporate stuff, and I mean, uh, but there's other cases I can talk about too and about mm-hmm. forensic linguistics. And even if I talk about forensic linguistics, I'll certainly reference the unabom case oh, and have sure. some pictures I would show. But I just decided at the end of this year, 25 years is enough, That's it. and um, he's in jail, he's gonna die in prison, Kaczynski. So, mm-hmm. um, but uh, if you really want to write, but don't here's a clue if you're going to write Kaczynski, don't do it on a computer. Because he doesn't believe in computers, right? Either an old-fashioned manual typewriter, or even use uh-huh. an electric typewriter, or handwrite it.
0: Uh huh.
2: So I wrote him a letter in 2016 at the request of the director of Manhunt uh-huh. Unabomber. They thought it would be cool to have me actually interview him. Uh-huh. Maybe they could film it. I'm not sure that would have actually worked, but I did write him a letter and I handwrote it. Um, but um, he never responded. Darn it. In 2007. <laughs> I was doing training at the Air Force Academy Uh in uh, Colorado Springs.
0: Colorado Springs. Yeah.
2: And I was there for two days and months before I said, Hey, Florence isn't too far from there. Yeah. Two hours down the interstate. Mm -hmm. And I said, maybe I can set up an interview with Ted. We'll leave this the last Ted story. Okay. And, uh, and uh, so I wrote to, I contacted the warden. You can't just make an inmate talk to you. He's sentenced. He's away Mm -hmm. for life. No one can force him to come out and talk to the FBI or so I say, hey, you know, um, this is well before the series. This is 2007. Mm-hmm. I said we interview, to interview this guy. I still have questions after all these years. So I talked to the warden. Well, let me put you in touch with his handler, his the correctional officer in charge. Yeah, he talked to Kaczynski. Yeah, everything was approved. Everything, I filled out some forms, you know, they faxed them back and forth back then, whatever, everything's approved. All right, mm-hmm. do my two days of training in Colorado Springs. Get in a rental car. I'm heading south on, a forget the single digit. Uh, it's interstate.
0: 285, isn't it? To Three
2: Florence, I or nine straight. is it
0: nine i don't
2: may have been nine from yeah, out of denver anyway. yeah uh, or denver area doesn't mm-hmm. matter but i'm about halfway there and my cell phone rings and um uh hello agent uh, fitzgerald yeah this is uh, officer so-and-so from florence yeah listen the interview is not going to happen today oh okay and actually tracy before i tell the story let me remind your listeners and you the Supermax in Florence is called Supermax for a reason.
1: Mm-hmm. It's only
2: the hardest yeah. and worst criminals, the, the, the masterminds. They want to make it escape-proof. So the cells, uh, you're in, the, you're in a cell by yourself. Three sixty-five, seven twenty-four, going backwards. Sure. Uh, you get out an hour to work out and take a shower. You're back in. So you do nothing all day long. Your punishment yeah. is in your cell. Mm-hmm. So just want to add that in there. So here I am <laughs> halfway there down I, whatever it was. Yeah. And uh, the guy calls me, he says, yeah, that interview we had set up. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to happen today. But Dr. Kaczynski, he must go by doctor in prison. Oh. Dr. Kaczynski wanted me to give you a message. So it's one of these deals. I kind of pull the phone away from me. Uh, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Put uh-huh. the phone back to my ear.
3: Uh-huh. All
2: right. Let me see here. It says, I wrote it down. It says, uh, uh, hi, Fitz. I'd really like to talk to you today, but I can't because I'm busy. (laughs) And that's it. Not even call again, or let's do a rain date or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, so what I of course figured was he probably thought I flew all the way out from, you know, the East coast just
3: just to interview
2: him. I never volunteered to anyone. Uh I'm I'm in Colorado Springs for two days before. So they probably thought I wasted a whole trip, but you know what? Tracy, I was just driving down there, whatever part of the interstate I was on. Uh-huh. What do I see in front of me A sign for Pike's peak
3: uh-huh. I
2: quick made the turn on the exit. and I climbed Pike's peak that day oh. so to this day. I always said, I think I had a better day than Kaczynski did, whether he agreed to talk to me or not. Wow. So, uh, you
0: sure did. Well, yeah. thanks for the work that you did on that. I mean, it made all of us, uh, it's made all of us safer and, um, and it's made me smarter today. So, um, so thank you for that. And, um, People can find you jamesrfitzgerald.com.
2: Sounds good, Tracy. Thank you to all your listeners and viewers and uh, try this again sometime.
0: Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it. I'll see you next time.